Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you here this morning on this cold and rainy, wintry day uh, in the Phoenix area. Um, I've determined a long time ago that I'm not going to complain when it's 40 degrees and raining because sooner or later and sooner, soon before we know it, it's going to be 100 degrees and not raining for a while. So, uh, hopefully you're enjoying this morning. I know that some of you are probably at home with your uh, electric blankets, if that's still a thing, and with your cup of coffee watching us online. So thank you for joining us online as well. As we continue into worship this morning, it's great to see all of you here. We are going to continue into our current series that we've been going through for the past couple of weeks called Getting Clarity in an Unclear World, where we've been looking at this really unique and very popular biblical book, the book of James. We're going to continue this morning. A couple things that we've learned so far, though, already in looking at the first two parts of James chapter 1 is in terms of how to get clarity, we've been talking about trials and we've been talking about temptations, we've been talking about traps as James presents it to us. As we looked at the very first week, we saw that trials are these things that happen in our lives that are unanticipated and really unwelcome. And as we've mentioned, of course, this past year has been full of its own, uh, its own group of trials that we've gone through related to all kinds of different things that we've been facing. And then we talked about last week how to get clarity even in our own hearts about how these things happen. James made it a little bit more personal in terms of temptation and sin that we face, that trials can lead to temptation, temptation leads to sin, sin, sin patterns in our lives as they're followed through end up in traps. And so what James has been helping us to see in the first two parts of chapter one, and we're going to continue that idea today as we finish out chapter one, is the importance of clarity. And I think one of the things we're going to see in this part in particular, this last part of chapter 1, is how getting clarity in seeking God's wisdom. Remember, James tells us, for any of you who lack wisdom, ask of God who generously gives of anyone uh, who asks of him, that the key to understanding and seeing things clearly is that piece of wisdom, is that aspect of wisdom which enables us to be able to see things from God's perspective as much as we can. And so James tells us to ask for that wisdom. And one thing we're going to see as we finish out chapter 1 is how closely related being able to see clearly is, being able to see things from God's perspective, how closely related that is to actual freedom in our lives. And by freedom, I don't necessarily mean uh, political freedom or anything like that. We're talking about spiritual freedom, the biblical freedom, and in particular what James is going to call liberty here this morning as we look at James chapter 1. And I think this is so important because when we can't see clearly, which certainly when we go through difficult times and when things are swirling around us, chaotic as they have been for a while now, um, things tend to get cloudy. And it's hard for us at times to see clearly, and so clarity is that much more important. And I think it's human nature sometimes typically to just speculate when we can't see clearly. Uh, When things are unclear, when things are chaotic, we begin to speculate. And speculation often leads us to places where we get bound by our own uncertainties, we get bound by fear, and I think we've all been there before. Maybe you've, uh, have you seen one of these old sea maps before? I don't know if you've seen these before. I brought uh, a a picture of what these look like. Have you seen these sea maps before? This is actually a map that comes out of the 16th century. It was made in the 16th century, and that is a, a map of Iceland, if you can't tell. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was created at some point in the early 16th century. And one of the things that you may notice as you look at that map initially, and it may be a little bit unclear, so maybe we can zoom in a little bit more. I got a zoom shot on this. 
is you can see these sea monsters that are all the way around and they encircle the entire island of Iceland. You may know if you've seen maps from this period about the 15th century or 16th century or so, that maps were full of these kinds of sea monsters that were all over the map and the maps that were created at that time. And I think one of the things that jumps out to us is how unusual that is. First of all, because we're not used to seeing sea monsters on modern maps, probably. And secondly, just how big and massive and ugly those sea monsters are, right? If you look at the proportion, how big those sea monsters are to like how big Iceland is, for example, some of those sea monsters look like they could consume the entire island if they really wanted to. But these, these monsters were drawn into these maps in the ancient world and all the way up to the Middle Ages because, and not, not just for artistic effect, but they were exaggerated in a way of warning those who would sail anywhere away from land that possibly this danger is out there. It represented what people believed at that time was a real and legitimate threat that they were really afraid of. So that if you ventured any way, any, any part, in any direction away from Iceland in this case, with any amount of distance, you might run into one of these things that looks just like a mermaid snake dragon thing. Or one of those things like that, I don't know what that thing is in the bottom, it's like a walrus lobster I don't, know, I don't know what it looks like. It's hideous, but it's terrifying, right? You can imagine if you were somebody who had never sailed off the coast of Iceland to any degree, if that thing was lurking for me out there, there's no way I'm going out into the sea. Now, sometime in about the 17th century, which was about 100 years after this, maps started changing in the ways that they were designed and the ways that they were made. This is an example of a map that is a map, of, uh, obviously, of Italy, and a map that, uh, that was made about 100 years after the map that we just looked at from Iceland. Now, look at the difference there. You still see a little bit of sea monster activity. There's a couple of them there, but the sea monsters are kind of underwater. They're much less threatening, and they're much smaller. And instead, what do we notice? What kind of takes the center stage, or what takes the focus of our eye as we look at this picture? First of all, it's the landmass, and secondly, it's a ship. It's a big, large ship. And so what caused the change from sea monsters everywhere to all of a sudden ships being central to these map designs? Well, simply put, people got clarity. Because this was a big era, a big time in history where explorers were sailing all over the place. And they began to make their ways into those places where previously thought before were so dangerous. And they realized that there weren't 500-foot krakens waiting for them. There weren't 200-foot lobsters or whatever that walrus thing was in the last picture. And as these exploring expeditions went out from Europe and they went out all the way across the world and they went to places like North America and then they came back and they came back home safely to Europe, they started to realize, getting clarity, that really the things that we thought were out there were really just figments of our imagination. So that when people got clarity, ships then began, began to replace the sea monsters. And I think there's, when we, when we look at this, when we see what this is all about, we get a sense for, in part, what James is telling us. That clarity leads to more of an understanding of what is really going on. That it doesn't mean that the sea monsters necessarily go away around us, but that we see them for what they are. It doesn't mean the trials go away, but we get clarity and we get a perspective on what these things really are. Those things will always be there in different forms. Remember, Jesus once told his disciples that he was sending them out into the world as sheep among wolves. 
which is a really, really dangerous thing to think about. But he was being honest with them, certainly in terms of what they were going to be facing. And in many cases, they were ultimately killed, slaughtered like sheep among the wolves. But Jesus also reminded them over and over again not to fear because he would be with them into the end. And I know that as we're going through what we're going through right now, there's a sense to where we just want to be comforted and affirmed in where we're at. When it's so difficult out there, when the sea monsters are raging, so to speak, it's our temptation to just want to fall back into the fold and to just be affirmed, especially at a place like church. I recognize there's grieving going on all around us. Not only have we experienced all of the added difficulties that we've experienced throughout this year, but life still continues to go on as it has. So we experience all the things that we typically experience, like relational strains, only they're much more strained because of all that we're experiencing, all the conflict and difficulty that we're facing. Friendships and families and even churches are being torn at the fiber of their relationships. Financial situations, financial difficulties has only been exacerbated by all that we've experienced. And of course, beyond just the COVID health issues, we still have things like cancer diagnoses happening all over the place, which floors us when something like that hits us or our families. And it's all enough to make us just want to hide under the bed and put a blanket over our heads and wait for it all to just pass. But of course, we know that that's not what we're called to do. For those map makers and sailors in the ancient world, their lack of clarity led to a fear and about, about what was out there, about what could possibly get them if they launched themselves out into the world. And as a result, what happened is their inability to see things clearly caused those sailors to retreat and not to sail in the way that they were supposed to. And if you think about it this way, particular, a country like Iceland, if they could have just figured out a little sooner that there wasn't a kraken waiting for them on the way to Europe, how much more they could have had trade and resources brought from Europe back to Iceland, and how much that might have benefited their small island. And look, in the same way, when the church retreats, and our first reaction is to fall back and have a bunker mentality where we just hide in the church and hide from the world because we're afraid of what might be out there, we're limiting our calling and not listening to the Jesus who has called us out into the world as his body on mission. And as we get into the book of James and we continue this morning, I think the book of James has been a ti- is a timely book for us to go through. I know there are times, again, where we really just want to be comforted and affirmed by Scripture, make us feel a little bit better for a time. But James is not like a spiritual candy man as we go through this book. I mean, he's not going to give us candy so we get that nice little sugar rush that just goes away as soon as we close the book. James is more like a spiritual butcher. Like, we're going to get to that filet, but it's going to be messy and it's going to be bloody before you get there. There's going to be a lot of things going on to get to that place, but the filet in the end is what you really want, which really provides substance. That's the meat of it all. And for these reasons, I think this is a really timely series. One of the things I love about God's Word is that what we find when we open God's Word and begin to read is that God has anticipated everything that we are going to face in this world that we live in. And when we face these things, he meets us right there with his self-revealing personal word. Yes, to comfort us, but to instruct us and to challenge us and to call us out into the world as well. 
And it's somewhat comical to look at a situation like the Middle Age map people and laugh at the ignorance of it all, right? But that was only 500 years ago. Keep that in mind. But 500 years later, we have the luxury of perspective, and perspective often makes all the difference. Seeing clearly and seeing clearly gives us perspective. And since that word freedom that we're going to talk about this morning means a hundred different things, especially right now. We're going to take a look a little closer at what the Bible has to say about freedom and how it relates to us being able to have a clear perspective. So we're going to continue in James chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 19 and finishing out the chapter to verse 27. And it says this, James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what we get in this section is James closes out James chapter 1, is a few issues that don't immediately have obvious connections to one another. I mean, James addresses all kinds of things. He addresses speaking and listening, which, you know, we can connect those dots pretty easily. But then he talks about anger. He talks about morality and filth in the world, evil in the world. And then he talks about serving orphans and widows. And the issues are addressed pretty specifically here. But the question then becomes, what is it that ties all these things together? Why does James join all these things together as kind of one progression of thought? And as we take a step back, what we realize is that James's main point in this section is a similar point to what he's going to make throughout the rest of the book. And we've hit on it a little bit already. It's going to continue to get a little bit more meat on it as we go forward. And it's this, is that faith, faith has substance when it acts and does something. That true faith is more than just a profession of faith. It's a life that actually lives out the profession of faith. Because for James, a profession of faith or an intellectual understanding of faith isn't necessarily true faith. Instead, real faith changes our lives and it causes us to live differently, especially in these three ways in which he's described it. And what we say when he talks about being slow to speak but quick to listen, in how we react to things in our emotional life, being slow to anger rather than rushing to anger, and then what we actually do in the world around us, which is represented by visiting and serving orphans and widows, or those who are the most vulnerable and needy among us. And so there are three things really that he's hitting on that don't seem to be immediately connected, but as we pull this back, as we pull the layers back, we see that James is joining all these things together, and he connects it really with this one thought in verse 21. Receive with meekness, or your translation might say with humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. All 
backed up. We even got quick to listen, slow to anger, serving those who are in need. All backed up by this idea of humility, of meekness, this attitude and approach and posture of humility. And notice how he closes, how he brings this all together, how he joins these two actions of anger and being quick to speak and slow to listen as they're, as they're joined here. And the point is crucial when it comes to us understanding this aspect of angry. Why we get angry, what types of anger are appropriate. You may know that in the Bible it tells us that it's not a sin necessarily to be angry, but that we ought to be aware of when our anger comes, exactly where it comes from, and what it is, what is, it, what is being expressed by our anger and how we're expressing it. In Ephesians 4.26 it actually says, Be angry, but do not sin. Which brings us to the place where we understand that, I mean, the Bible is telling us that it's not angry, it's not a sin to be angry per se, but we need to be careful because anger can easily lead us into sin. And I think at the same time, one thing we need to realize is that our anger, as much as we want to sometimes equate it with God's anger, is not always righteous anger. When we talk about God's anger towards things, there are certainly things that God gets angry at, and he's right to be angry at them. There's some of the things that make us angry whether it's something like injustice or violence against innocent people or times when uh, God's word or Jesus is being misrepresented. I mean, those are some of the things that might make us angry that kind of line up with the things that also make God angry. And we often call that righteous indignation. But here's the issue with righteous indignation when it comes to human beings. We often like to think that when we get angry, it's coming from a place of righteous indignation. What James is warning us about here is that many times the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Which I think is important for us to realize because we, our first reaction when we get angry is often to defend our anger, to justify it in some way, to explain our anger as just kind of an, an aspect of our, of our holiness and what's right and what's good. When in reality, it's an emotional reaction that probably at first blush is not completely godly. Now, I want to show you something that illustrates this a little bit. I, a few years ago, uh, The Tonight Show did this like setup on the street, um, and really what happened is that there was a baseball player by the name of Robinson Cano. He played for the New York Yankees for several years. He came up through their farm system, was a rookie with them, won a World Series with them, and uh, when it came time for him to be a free agent, he got offered more money by a different baseball team, by the Seattle Mariners, and he decided to take that contract, which was worth more than what the Yankees were willing to pay him. Like 99% of all other professional athletes, he decided to go with the, the team that's gonna pay him more money, right? Reasonable decision. But of course, New York Yankees fans aren't necessarily reasonable, so they got really upset at Robinson Cano, and it was a big deal in the city, and in fact, such a big deal, that the Tonight Show decided to set up, kind of this setup in the middle of New York City, and when Robinson Cano returned as a, player of the, uh, as a player with the Mariners to play against the Yankees, they, they set up some of these fans in the middle of New York City. And what they did is they set up a huge cardboard cutout of Robinson Cano's face, and they got these Yankee fans on camera, and they asked them, hey, uh, are you a Yankee fan? If you're a Yankee fan, here's a, here's a picture of Robinson Cano. You know, he's come back to New York, and you can boo him right now if you'd like to. And you see the anger that comes out of them. They start booing him, they start booing him. But the big, the big surprise, of course, is that Robinson Cano is on the other side of that cardboard as they're booing him, the actual guy, Robinson Cano. And so then they show what happens when he steps out behind, from behind that cardboard and you see a total reversal in reaction. And really what I want us to see here is how quick we can be 
to anger and how the righteous or the anger of, of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And that when we're quick to speak and when we're quick to get angry, how foolish we can end up looking once we realize exactly what we're doing. So let's take a look. So, like this is, this is relatively minor, right? They're just booing and that kind of thing. But at the same time, it shows really how foolish human anger can be sometimes, and we feel like we can justify it in many cases. I'm sure these Yankee fans, as you even saw, they were justifying their own anger. Well, yeah, he went and played for another team. But it can quickly become also something that we regret. And so this is James' caution here to show us that our, while our temptation is often to equate our personal ang- anger with even something like the righteous indignation of God, that in many cases, our anger and our first reaction, being quick to speak rather than being quick to listen and slow to speak, leads us to a place where ultimately, it's not about God, but it's about us. And James points us towards looking at the mirror then, figuratively speaking, and this should make sense to us as an analogy, right? We often may even say, uh, I need to take a deep look in the mirror over this issue. And what we're meaning, of course, is not that we're literally going to run to the bathroom and stare at the mirror, but, little, but what it means is that taking a deep look at the mirror is to reflect on why we're making the decisions we're making, why it is that we're acting the way that we are, why it is that we're saying the things that we are, why it is that we might be reacting in anger, why it is that we might be reacting with slander or gossip, why it is that we're unwilling to listen and why it is that we feel like we have to be angry in terms of verbally attacking those who may disagree with us or be different than us. And this is important to sort out because, and to reflect on because not only does anger affect us personally, but it has an effect on the church community, the church community that is supposed to represent Jesus to one another and represent Jesus to the world. It has an effect on, on, the, on the church that is called out into the world, and you may know this, I think it goes without saying, that we live in a world that is defined by anger and outrage right now. Everybody seems to be angry, and not only that, but everybody wants you to know why they're angry. And we're full of a society that is quick to be angry and quick to speak about why they're angry, because we've got things like social media, so as soon as you get angry, you can just tweet it out, put it on Facebook, and hundreds of people may see exactly why you're angry. And the church is called to be different, not just different for the sake of being different, but different in the way that we react. We're called to be people who love sacrificially and are slow to be angry, yet are quick to listen and slow to speak and quick to reflect and to look in the mirror. And we can talk about loving all day long, but if we treat other people with contempt and anger, that's not coming out of love. The wise Yoda once said, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. It's not bad for a little green puppet, right? But the Bible tells us, as we saw last week, that a similar idea, that desires lead to temptation, temptation leads to sin, sin leads to a trap, and and the trap ultimately leads to spiritual death. And as it relates to anger, anger is one of those, when it's it's anger that is sin, it, it, it justifies itself and it hides itself very well in our motivations. So James talks about the law of liberty, and this is the law of liberty. And what's interesting is that that when James talks about the mirror, he doesn't talk about this mirror as just a place for self-reflecting in general, but a place where we actually place ourselves before the law of liberty, before God's word, to reflect deeply on what it is that God is saying. 
and how it is that not only is he trying to instruct us, but this is the law of liberty that brings us freedom. That it's the way for us to see freedom out of those things that sin enslaves us with. It bind, where sin binds us up, the law of liberty, God's word, frees us up. And this is what James calls us to look deeply into. I think James is actually a really good book for these kinds of things, especially as it relates uh, to coming face to face with our witness and our action in the world. At the end of this, at the end of this chapter here, James ends with this exhortation uh, to care for those who are widows, those who are orphans. I think what we're to see here is that it's not, yes, we are to care for widows and orphans, but it's not just widows and orphans. It actually, that represents uh, a population at the time that were notoriously vulnerable because widows and orphans could not provide for themselves. And so if we look at this heading of widows and orphans, we can put in our world today things like the poor, the disenfranchised, those who are oppressed, even the unborn, those who are vulnerable, those who cannot take care of themselves, and those who need to be protected, and those who need to be looked out for, those who need to be helped. And in James chapter 2, we're going to get to this in a couple of weeks, but I want us to see this because this is an explanation for why James says true religion looks like this, caring for those who are vulnerable in our world. James 2, 14 through 20 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, of course, we'll get into this a little bit more in a couple of weeks. And when we read something like this, of course, this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect in doing this and that we don't sin. And, you know, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be calling, you know, you shouldn't be um, questioning your salvation if you're not perfect in all these things, right? The truth is, is that sometimes we're faithful to these things, but we're continued to be called out into process in following God, that our heart should be the same as God's heart towards the world, that we're concerned about these things because these are the things that God is concerned about. And this is what it looks like to be Jesus in the world, specifically to care for those who are the most vulnerable around us. Speaking of that, it might be a good question to ask how well we think we're doing as a church in those kinds of things. When we read what we just read from James chapter 2, how well are we doing this? How well are we looking at a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and saying, because of my faith, I'm compelled to provide for them until they're not lacking anymore? Well, Compassion International did an assessment several years ago with the help of global economists, and they asked the question, what would it look like for us to eliminate global poverty, and in particular, extreme poverty? And what they define extreme poverty as is people who are living on $1 or less per day, which you may know there are millions of people throughout the globe who are living on less than $1 per day. And they asked the question, what would it take for us to eliminate that problem of global poverty? What they found is that it would take about $74 billion per year to eliminate global poverty in our world, which sounds like a huge number. I mean, 74 billion, that, that sounds astronomical. 
and almost unreachable, unattainable, all those things, until you consider another number, $5.2 trillion, which is the annual income of just Christian American churchgoers, right? So Christian American churchgoers, not all Americans, but Christian American churchgoers, which is about 30, 35% of the population. The annual income from Christian American churchgoers is $5.2 trillion. Now, I'm not good at math necessarily, especially with trillions and billions of dollars. So I plugged this into my iPhone and I came out with this number. 74 billion divided by 5.2 trillion is about 1%. So 1% of the income amount of just Christian American churchgoers could solve the problem of global poverty at $74 billion. To give you some more perspective, Americans spend about $705 billion on entertainment alone each year, 10 times the amount that it would take to take care of global poverty. Now, I think it's pretty clear from these numbers that God has given the church, and in particular just the American church, everything we need to provide for the most needy in the world. Scott Todd from Compassion International said this after that research study. He said, the wealthy church today, the American church has been entrusted with a purse of the kingdom. And the majority of Christ followers live in the developing world, which means the majority of Christians live in what we might call third world countries, the developing world. They don't live in the western industrialized nations of the world. Most of them live outside of the west. And what do they think as they look at the treasurer's of God's kingdom? Are they assuming that we would put the treasuries of, of the kingdom to celebrating God's goodness or caring for the poor? And then he asked this rhetorical question, how are we doing at that? Now in this way, one of the things about the book of James is I think what we can say, just like many of the other books in the Bible, is that these books are written directly to Christians. And that as much as we want to always kind of point the finger outside the church and say these are all the problems that are going on outside the church, when you realize when you look at Scripture, all the things that are admonishing us and correcting us are written directly to the church. They're not written to the world necessarily. There's a few exceptions. But overwhelmingly, these letters that are written in the New Testament, the Old Testament prophets go wherever you want in Scripture. They're written to God's people. James chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. I mean, in some cases, James almost sounds like an Old Testament prophet himself. He says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James 5, 1 through 3. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James 5, 8 and 9. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, if I didn't tell you that those came from the book of James, I could tell you those came from some of the judgment oracles of the Old Testament prophets, and you probably believe me. Because you can set those things next to the judgment oracles of Jeremiah, of Isaiah, of Amos, and they would side by side look almost exactly the same. And this ought to move us. 
This ought to move us in a direction where we realize that although we want to point to the sea monsters out there as the greatest danger, that the thing that is the greatest danger for us resides right here in the human heart. And as much as we want to say the book of James is about action, really the book of James is about repentance. It's a book about action in the sense that when we live and the way that we live is a revealer of what is going on in our hearts and what calls us to repentance. And so words and actions are more than just kind of strivings to do better in life. There is a revealing that goes on when we see what we say, why we say it, and what it is that we are doing in the world. And again, as much as we want to say, Lord, look at all the evil stuff that's out there in the world. At least in this passage, and really throughout the book of James, what God is telling us is, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. One of our staff members, I was talking with one of our staff members this past week, and um, she mentioned the word sifting in terms of what we're experiencing right now, I think, as a church, and in many ways just as individuals. We're obviously going through, as we've mentioned a lot already this morning, some tough times, difficult times, and I don't know if you're familiar with that word sifting. Sifting is a word that's used throughout Scripture, but it, is also, it also has its background as a farming term. And sifting, the process of sifting, is basically taking in the harvest of wheat, for example, and you bring in all the stuff that comes within the harvest, which is all this stuff that is, you know, it's, a, it's the husk and it's the dust and it's all the stuff that's useless as well as the stuff that is useful, which is the grain. And what you're ultimately trying to get to is the substance of the grain. That's what every farmer wants. And so this process of sifting gets rid of the chaff. It gets rid of, the, it gets rid of again, the, the husk. It gets rid of all the, all the uh, impurities and all the dust and gets you down to a place where we're really getting to the substance of the plant, which is the wheat. And, you know, we say all the time that we want revival in the church. And I think we're in desperate need of revival. But if you look at how revival happens in Scripture and throughout church history, revival is almost always preceded by a time of heartfelt, gut-wrenching repentance. In almost every situation, especially throughout church history, think of the great awakenings throughout the American church, they were preceded by a time of deep, heartfelt repentance from the church. And it's during these times of sifting, where sifting works hand-in-hand with repentance. Sifting leads us to repentance, and repentance is a part of the sifting that God is doing in our hearts as a result of what we are experiencing. It's sifting so that God, by His grace, can lead us forward. It's sifting so that God can reveal the things that are of substance versus the things that need to go away, the things that need to be burned away, the chaff, the husk, the dust, the stuff that has no substance. And sifting doesn't feel good, to be honest, especially in spiritual terms. It hurts. We end up losing some things, some things maybe that we didn't want to lose. But in the end, in the midst of all of this, what we get back to is the faithful hand of God bringing out the substance in the end. And it's done through repentance, God calling us home. I think that's one of the best ways to describe repentance is that God's calling us home from the places that we've found ourselves and wandered into. It's a gentle call. Sometimes it's a call that is very honest, but at the same time, it's a call out of God's love and faithfulness to bring us back. And so this morning as we close, um, I want to pray for us and ask the band to join us. And I want us to think about what it looks like, as James points out here, 
for us to look deeply into that mirror of reflection, and not just for the sake of self-reflection in some kind of new agey way, but reflecting specifically on what God's word has to say to us. And that in the process, we would trust in this perfect law of liberty that sets us free. So if you'll join me in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for your word that you call the law of liberty and freedom. The words that free us from things that maybe sometimes we don't even know that we're bound by. I think about these things that you're calling out as we read James chapter 1, and one thing that we realize is that you're getting down to the heart of our desires and the ways and reasons why we do things. Father, forgive us for being people who have been determined and and led so much by our anger. We look at a world sometimes and we point out every other thing sometimes than the outrage that is going on around us as sin. It's easy to see all kinds of other sins that may be more obvious, but sometimes anger and outrage, the things that burn within us, are more difficult to see. Sometimes something like greed is more difficult to see. And so, Lord, we ask that you would lead us to that place where we can look deeply into the mirror of your word. And by the work of your spirit, Father, you would help us to see clearly, as your word says right here, as we were supposed to be. When we immediately forget what we look like, because we've forgotten the way that you have called us, the way that you have put us together, and what you have redeemed us for. You have called us to be Jesus in this world, and in those places where we don't look like Jesus, Lord, we ask you to reveal it. And where repentance is necessary, Father, give us the faith to repent. We know, Lord, that you're sifting us. We can feel it. We can see it in our lives. And I pray that that process wouldn't be wasted among us. We would be able to see true substance of faith for what it looks like. Thank you for being faithful in every circumstance. We know there are times when we doubt your faithfulness because of what we see going on around us, but Father, help us. Where we lack faith, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. And as we've been praying throughout this series, Lord, we ask for wisdom because we know that you generously give to us when we ask. We want to see with your eyes, Lord. We want to have the heart that you have for one another and for this world that you've called us to. So that when we talk about North being a community of people who love God, who love one another, and who love the world, that we would clearly see what that looks like. That it would be more than words that we just confess. It would be the very life in which we live. And that in the end, you would be glorified and that all men would be drawn to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thanks again for joining us this morning. 
enjoy the, uh, enjoy the cold weather. Enjoy the winter weather for the next couple of days. It'll be gone before you know it, and uh, then we'll be back to normal stuff. But enjoy it out there. Be safe. Thank you again for joining us. Be blessed this week as you go out and you look for how the Lord is leading you into the world to be people who are, just as, a, as we close, more of him, less of us. Lord, that he would take everything, that we would be faithful witnesses into the world who needs to know him. So have a great week. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ as you make your way out. If you have any prayer requests that you would like uh, to submit, please make sure you take one of those prayer request cards, drop it in one of the, the offering stands as you leave. Uh, we, we consider it a privilege to be praying over those uh, every week together as a staff and as a prayer team, and we know there's a lot of need out there right now. It's a heavy, heavy time for a lot of us, so allow us to join with you in, in praying through those things and, and, and uh, carrying those burdens with you. All right? Have a great week. See you next Sunday. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.